Hello, I'm Nanette Dodo, a partner and co-head of the Freshfields Competition Practice in China, and I'm delighted to welcome you back to the next in Freshfields Managing Risk in Asia podcast. In this podcast, we will focus on investment strategy risk. I'm joined by a stellar panel of guests to navigate this topic. My fellow partner at Freshfields, Arun Balasubramanian. Arun is a US qualified partner with over two decades of experience spanning New York, London, Hong Kong, and Singapore. During this time, he's been involved in numerous groundbreaking capital markets, M&A, and investigations matters across Asia. Welcome, Arun. Thank you, Nanette, and great to be here. I'm also joined by Yong Wailing. She's a managing director and regional head of Asia Pacific for CDPQ Global. Wailing coordinates all CDPQ activities in the region. She has over 30 years of experience in the finance and banking sectors across Asia Pacific. This includes 13 years in China, where she built a commercial banking business from the ground up. Wailing has held several senior positions across the region, including at OCBC, HSBC, JP Morgan, amongst others. I am delighted to welcome you, Wailing, to this discussion. Thank you, Ninette, and I'm very, very happy to be here. Rounding out the panel, we're joined by Kenneth Juster in New York. Ken is senior counsel at Freshfields. He has over 40 years of experience as a senior government official, a senior law partner, and senior business executive. Most recently, Ken served as the US ambassador to India from 2017 to 2021. And prior to that, he spent several years as a partner and managing director at the global investment firm Warburg Pincus, where he focused on geopolitical risk, global public policy, regulatory matters, and environmental, social, and governance issues. And before that, he was the executive vice president of law, policy, corporate strategy at Salesforce. Ken has also practiced law in Washington, D.C. for 16 years and has served in other senior government positions. Hi, Annette. Nice to be here with you. Ken, I'd like to start with you first to assist in setting the scene for today's discussion. This podcast series has explored the uniqueness, diversity, and also the commonalities of risk and opportunity across the Asia-Pacific region. To your mind, and based on your very recent experience in the region, what is it that sets Asia apart on the global stage? Well, from a geopolitical perspective, uh, the area that we have traditionally referred to as Asia and is now called by many the Indo-Pacific region, has really become the center of gravity of international affairs. This area, which stretches from the east coast of Africa to the west coast of the United States, includes the countries in the world with the largest populations and the largest and fastest growing economies. I would say an estimated 50 to 70% of world trade goes through the waters of the Indo-Pacific, and the region is very rich in natural resources. Now, this dynamic region has many developmental challenges, but also great opportunities for investment, including in high-quality infrastructure, in energy, including green energy, in healthcare, in education, and in technology. And while you have large democracies in the region, such as Australia, Japan, and Korea, and of course, India, with its enormous economic growth potential, You also have many emerging economies in Southeast Asia and South Asia. And as everyone knows, you have a rising China with the largest population in the world and the second largest economy. 
how the region and the world adjusts to and accommodates the rise of China will be the major focus of international affairs over the next five to 10 years, in my opinion, and will inevitably pose some geopolitical risks to investors, depending on how the rise of China plays out, whether that's entirely peaceful or there's some degree of conflict that comes with it. So you have a diverse and complex region with high growth potential and great opportunities for investment, but also its share of risks. And you make a very important point, uh, which can sometimes be overlooked in terms of the diversity of the region, the opportunities, the challenges, and also some of the potential risks. Wileng, from your perspective, and looking at this through the lens of an investor, could you identify some of the key geographies and the wider APEC region of interest to global investors, such as CDPQ? Sure. I mean, as what Ken said, Asia-Pacific, it's huge and it's indeed very, very diverse. So if you look at CDPQ itself, APAC, Asia-Pacific now accounts for roughly 15% of our total AUM. And just for info, our AUM, it's now 390 billion Canadian dollars. So just to put things in perspective, that's 15%. And the 15%, I would say the main bulk of it will be in Australia, India, and China. So Australia, to us, it's really a developed market, which is in many ways very similar to Canada. And then you look at India and China, which are really emerging markets, or in the case of China, it is now the second largest economy of the world. But even if I just come back to China itself, China, we tend to think of it as one China, but it is not. China, it's really the size of Europe, and it is as complex as Europe, just that you won't commingle Eastern Europe with the more developed Western Europe. And it's, a, and it's the same thing with China. And on top of that, we have interests and we are very, very keen to explore opportunities in Southeast Asia. And the main one, I would say, would be Indonesia. So there are many opportunities in Indonesia itself with a population of 270 million and it's growing very rapidly. So that is Southeast Asia. And if you look at North Asia, other than China, we have put money in Taiwan in renewables. And we are also exploring renewables opportunities in Japan and Korea. So while then you focus very much on the sort of the differences across uh, this uh, very rich region, what are the key commonalities across the region and points you would highlight in that context? I think one of the commonality, it's really the growth that's coming through this part of the world. And if you take a step back, what's really driving the growth of all of these economies in Asia Pacific? I think one of them, it's urbanization. That's very, very clear. So, you know, particularly if you look at countries like China and India, urbanization is playing a huge role to that. That's one. Second one would be digital adoption. And again, if you look at the case of Southeast Asia, if you look at the case of China, it's almost a generation has bypassed the whole analog and moved st moving straight to digital. So the ability to drive a lot of social changes and economic changes with digital adoption of mobile phones alone, that has led to phenomenal growth in e-commerce, in fintech, all across, whether you're living in remote villages or whether you're in cities. So, and I think that has leveled the playing field to a very large extent 
for to enable economic growth in these countries and regions. So that's the second growth factor. And the third is that, relatively speaking, the population, particularly in Southeast Asia and this part of the world, tend to be younger. So that, again, that drives a lot of that consumption behavior and a rising middle class. If I would use China as an example, China's GDP is now 10,000 per person. But that 10,000 per person, US, it's really not 10,000 across 1.3 billion people. You're talking probably about 400 million people with 40,000 US worth of GDP. But the other 800, that means mathematically, they have got 2,500 GDP. So again, if you look at the room for the aspirational middle class, it's huge. So that is really the third factor that's driving the growth. And lastly, I think this is where Asia, I think it's going to be on par with the rest of the world, which is ESG. So on the climate front, on the carbon front, that's going to drive a lot of that transition and a lot of that growth in this part of the world. Thanks for that, Welling. Irene, I'd like to bring you into the conversation and focus uh, for a few minutes on the ESG component of what Wileng has just been discussing, and also particularly in light of the recent COP26 uh, meetings. So we are seeing that ESG is playing an important aspect of the investment philosophy of major global investors in this region. This is obviously an emerging opportunity, and it is also at the same time an emerging risk. Have you seen the risk factors evolve in the region? Thanks, Nanette. And going back to what Ken and, and Wailing just said, with many of the key emerging economies in Asia, I would say that the early 90s is when the first significant wave of foreign investment really began. I mean, prior to that, yes, you had joint ventures, greenfield investments, and so on. But the early 90s is when many of these economies decided to open themselves out to foreign investment in a significant way. And in the early years, the focus of foreign investors was really on how their foreign investment was going to be protected. There were concerns around nationalization. There were concerns around taxation policies. There were concerns around how well the host governments would protect their investment going forward. That then shifted in the 2000s to more of a focus on local partners. How good are our local partners? Are they able to do th- things that might impede the integrity of our investment in any way? That then gave way to a great deal of focus on regulation-based compliance. When things like FCPA enforcement in the United States started to intensify, We then started seeing enforcement actions in areas such as sanctions, anti-money laundering, and so on. Now, I think we've moved to an era where ESG issues are really at the forefront of compliance. And we are starting to see that right across these markets with almost an equal focus on the E, the S, and the G. Environment has always been a, a significant area of focus because most of these countries do have environmental regulations. But social and governance, I think, are the two themes that are really quite significant at this point in time. We are seeing those as part of the due diligence exercise that uh, investors undertake. We see those as a very significant component of the negotiations that we participate in. And it's slowly starting to enter into the documentation for transactions as well. 
let me just add on to what Arun was uh, saying. You know, I was fortunate to be deeply involved in ESG issues since 2010 when I launched a focused ESG program at Warburg Pincus for Warburg and for its portfolio companies. And at that time, and this is a general proposition, I felt that the European companies were often leaders in ESG. Uh, American companies were a bit behind. And quite frankly, a lot of Asian companies really lagged further behind them. Uh, I think that much of this, as Arun says, is now changing and is changing especially in Asia. While there are certainly challenges, uh, for example, related to the enormous needs for energy, including fossil fuels for development in this region. There are certain cultural traditions, in particular relating to gender, that uh, have an impact. Nonetheless, as Arun has said, we've seen, and Weiling also, an increased focus on transitioning to cleaner energy and green energy and a cleaner environment, increased opportunities for women in the workforce, increased diversity and higher labor standards. So I also think with the enhanced flow of foreign capital, you're going to see increased focus on governance. I mean, again, as Arun has stated, this is an important consideration, but I think it's going to be one for increased attention. So overall, ESG issues, from my perspective, are now seen not just in terms of risk mitigation, but also in terms of generating value. And if I may jump in as well, I think Arun brought up a very good point. You were talking about the second wave where, you know, most companies were really very, very keen to protect itself from a regulatory compliance point of view and partner selection. But I would like to say that even today, to an investor like CDPQ, partner selection remains the primary factor. Because no matter how good a process, no matter how good a due diligence, at the end of the day, nothing beats the quality of your partner. You know, projects, investments can, you know, may run into problems from time to time. Industries may go through cycles, but guess what? It's really the quality of your partner that's going to carry you through. And I would say that this is really something that CDPQ firmly believes in. Our previous CEO, Michael Sabia, and our current CEO, Charles Emmon, you know, stresses that point. It's partners above anything else. So that is one. And in terms of ESG for this part of the world, clearly, you know, there's a lot of attention on it, particularly from CDPQ itself. We look, we see ourselves as providers of constructive capital. And if I look at ESG in this part of the world, I think there is a lot of focus on the E side. And why is that so? Because it's the most quantifiable. You can measure carbon emissions, carbon intensity. There's a lot of quantifiable um, measurements. But the truth is, there is still not very consistent reporting standards. There's still a lot of questions from the financial markets and investors on greenwashing. So I think all of these are areas which a lot of us in the industry are looking to push forward with standardized uh, reporting. That's one. And two, the other thing that we have to be very sensitive about is the need to, you know, for transition is what can talk about because the whole Asia Pacific, we're talking about very different economic stages. And to say that we're all going to make that switch to clean energy overnight, I don't think it's realistic. 
So how are we going to enable such transitions? I've always said it's much easier to invest in brand new greenfield projects and start from scratch. But what happens when you're already running on the existing technology? So this is something which we are attempting to do. So we've put aside a $10 billion pocket to finance and invest in such transitions. And I've spoken to several of our peers. I think a lot of us are trying to do the same thing. So whereby we see ourselves as catalysts. And if we all of us, imagine all of the institutional money, if all of us can put that to play, I think we will be able to finance quite a lot of these new technology, unproven technology sometimes, in order to finance that transition. So that's the second thing. And the last thing I want to highlight is that there's now a lot of competition for sustainable projects. As pension fund, for us, the returns remains very important. So I think the point where it comes that if there's too much competition and pricing becomes unrealistic, I think that will be a real challenge for investors like ourselves. If I could just pick up on one of the points uh, Weilang made about governance uh, and its importance, but also why it's an area that needs to be focused on by investors, uh, because there is no one global standard on governance and each country has its own legal and regulatory framework, as well as its own internal dynamics in terms of the relationship of the national jurisdiction to the local jurisdiction, and even its own set of traditional business practices. So governance issues can be especially complicated for a new investor because there's no one-size-fits-all approach. That's why, uh, going back to Weiling's point on partnering, a smart investor really needs to be able to rely on a trusted partner on the ground who understands the local environment, the investment environment, including the key players at the national and the local level. And while a business partner is very important, obviously an investor can have its own people on the ground, but also they need to have key advisors, including lawyers, who have both a deep and a varied background in a local jurisdiction. So I really just want to emphasize that the governance issues are very complicated and to be successful, a, a good partner, both at the business level and uh, with advisors is most critical. Ken, you make a very important point on the variation in governance. We talked uh, about the evolution of risk and also now governance. I'd like to ask you, Wailang, how do you find navigating these variations in governance and risk across the region? Exciting and challenging. <laughs> you know, as we said, really, this part of the world is very, very varied. And I've always looked at, you know, governance on a, how do you, how do you define governance? Global standards, local standards, provincial standards, so I think this is really where your localized knowledge and your local partnership comes, because that's what helps you navigate all of the local nuances and yet maintaining what are the must-haves, what are the red lines as far as global governance standards are concerned. So there are certain standards that you have to uphold because you are an international player, and yet you have to be sensitive enough to understand that there are local nuances that you have to learn to navigate. 
And that's where, you know, boots on the ground. And that's where a network of partners, and it's not just your financial partners as what Ken talked about. It's really a network of partners. Those could be think tanks. Those could be thought leaders and essentially players from different fields. And that's that importance of that network. So just to give you an example, when I was working in China, I have never taken just one single opinion, even if it's from a lawyer, Ken. So the idea is to be able to talk to at least five to six groups of people with very different vested interests. Because in the China context, we always talk about everyone touches an elephant and then your interpretation of an elephant will be very different depending on which part of the elephant have you touched. So the idea is to talk to five, six people with very different vested interests. And then eventually you yourself, you make a judgment on what is your interpretation of that elephant. Um, and does, that, does it pass your internal standards in terms of governance? So this is really what I call that 50 shades of gray and how gray or how white do you want it to be? And again, I've always emphasized that the importance of global standards and yet being sensitive to the local nuances. I think that's really key. Easier said than done, but that's what makes our life very fun. Yeah, I would just emphasize one additional point because I think everything that Wei Lang said was excellent and I complete, completely agree with it. It's important that the partner not only be trusted and well-established in a region, but have a excellent reputation, especially for ethics and for integrity. Because in many respects, you're going to be judged in part by your partner as well. And so you need to have people who understand the local environment, but also as a red line, it has to be people of the highest ethics and reputation. And it helps, of course, if their interests align with the investor's interests, and if they also, as a business partner, will be sharing the risks as well, because then you really have uh, the best of all worlds. So again, good reputation for ethics, experience and knowledge of the local market, but also an alignment of interest and a sharing of risks. Uh, and we are seeing um, what Weiling just said and uh, and Ken just said, you know, play itself out very, very clearly in, in current practice. We see single investor investments, certainly in um, you know, across the region. But when it comes to the more complex assets, particularly those in infrastructure or those in regulated industries, we see a variety of partnering strategies. So clearly the local partner who is running the business is, is at, the, at the center of it all. But investors are increasingly coming in in consortium arrangements of all kinds. So we have seen large groups of financial investors who get together in a consortium occasionally with a global strategic who is an expert in the particular sector. The consortium arrangements tend to be quite interesting, quite complex. But there, you know, as, as, as Weiling said, you have, you know, many different perspectives, many different experiences that all come together to support one another in assisting the growth of the asset that they are investing in. And we really see that a lot in the infrastructure space, whether it is airports, ports, toll roads, uh, all of which are significant areas for growth in these economies, driven by some of the factors that Weiling mentioned um, you know, earlier in, in, in the podcast. 
The other trend, which I think is um, is quite notable, is the partnering strategy is increasingly involving local sovereign wealth funds. And that goes to what Ken and Weiling both said, which is quality for your local partner, their closeness to regulations and policy can have very important short-term and long-term benefits to that investment. I think what is evident, uh, Arun, Weiling and Ken, is that there are huge opportunities across uh, across Asia. Uh, the real challenge is ensuring that there is a right planning and risk management to ensure that these investments can actually come to pass. You mentioned Arun Consortia Partnering Collaboration. Uh, as an antitrust lawyer, the, some of the questions that we need to consider in this context are whether there might be merger control filing requirements regarding the transactions. Increasingly so, whether there might be foreign investment reviews uh, required, whether in this region or further afield across the world. Uh, And then, of course, the context of collaborations, the focus for us is mitigating risk and ensuring that a transaction or a form of collaboration can also come to pass, but with limited antitrust risks being posed. From your perspective, then, Arun, you know, what are some of the other risks you see, the evolution and the dynamics of risks in the region? How have these been reflected in deal documentations, basically beyond uh, the antitrust sphere? I think we are in a, in a transitional phase, uh, Ninette. Some of the traditional documentation that we are all used to is evolving. We are starting to see uh, a lot more focus on consortium governance arrangements. You make a very good point that issues such as antitrust and foreign investment often need to be analyzed on a look-through basis to every investor that's sitting in the consortium. We have done transactions recently where each of the investors had to make CFIUS filings in the United States. Each investor had to assess what its merger filing requirements were. And it can't be done in isolation. So there is a lot of planning that is involved quite a bit of structuring in terms of governance arrangements and the documentation. On documentation, and an important trend is just greater focus on ESG-related issues, which is challenging because many of these standards are evolving. As both Weiling and Ken mentioned earlier in the conversation, there isn't a global standard. There isn't a, a global set of common regulations that we can refer to. Uh, it's very interesting that the IFRS Foundation has now announced that there will be a set of sustainability disclosure standards that will be formulated over time. I think those might give us a bit of a benchmark on how we structure our documentation in terms of representations, warranties, and conduct of the business covenants. But that remains to be seen. But I think we are in a, in a transitional phase and we all need to be acutely aware that the provisions that we put into these documents will have an impact on how these businesses conduct themselves and build themselves over time, and in turn, impacts on how stakeholders, ultimate consumers, and regulators will look at the investment and the performance of the underlying company. Thank you very much for that, Aaron. So we talked about the evolution of risk over time and focus on governance and managing legal risk. So just a couple of sentences. Perhaps I can start with you, Ken. How would you describe the risk landscape in Asia 
And what could this mean for global investors as they look into 2022? Well, I really will conclude where I began. The Indo-Pacific is, I think, the most dynamic region of the world. It is also, in many respects, the most diverse region of the world. There are huge economic growth opportunities across all sectors, uh, but there are also, in addition to the normal investment risks, an additional layer of geopolitical risk that goes with the moving tectonic plates of the region and especially the rise of China. That said, I think anyone in business is looking at Asia and the Indo-Pacific as a huge growth opportunity and is making it their business to be there. And so I think it's a very exciting environment. And I, again, just reiterate that ultimately you're investing not in a country, but in a company. And so you really have to focus on the particulars of the investment and not get overwhelmed by some of the broader risks at the same time. Well, like, what are your thoughts? You know, I couldn't have said it better than Ken. So I will not attempt to paraphrase that. And, you know, personally, I grew up in Asia. Uh, so you can really count me as one of the eternal Asia bulls. Uh, so again, I think, you know, you look at it from, as an investor point of view, risk rewards, does it stack up? So, you know, there are risks, but there are opportunities out here. And secondly, I think if you look at a portfolio construct, um, Asia is diversifying in, in quite a lot of ways because in terms of it is not fully, fully aligned with the developed world. So I think that's what makes Asia very interesting. And from a risk management landscape, I think really nothing beats a very, very thoughtful, well-thought-out investment strategy where you actually invest in a very deliberate manner where you understand the, the company, where you understand your partner, and you believe you can navigate the landscape. So basically going in with your eyes open, and if things don't end up as what you planned, you work through it with a trusted partner. And I think that applies to anywhere else in the world, honestly. To echo what um, Ken and Wiling just said, I think as a practitioner, there is no more exciting place in the world to be at this point in time. And um, I feel very grateful to be here in, in Asia at this, at this time of, of, of great transition. Uh, there isn't one size that fits all. And when people talk to me about, oh, let's follow this precedent, this is market practice, I tend to view assertions like that with a, with a healthy dose of skepticism. And I see our job as being constantly vigilant to what's going on, to support the robust and creative investment strategies of firms like CDPQ and others by always thinking a step ahead to see what might come around the corner. I think that is a very important insight that we all bring to the table. I look forward to supporting our, our, our clients um, in their journey in this very, very exciting market. Well, thank you very much for that, Arun. Uh, I'd also like to thank Wei Leng and Ken for a riveting discussion. I'd like to also thank you, our listeners, for joining us for this podcast. Thank you.